as we begin this new year, we stand at the threshold of an opportunity to grow as individuals and as a church family. When constructing a new building, you need detailed drawings to provide the blueprint for construction. It's the same with our lives. We need a solid blueprint, God's wisdom, for living in the real world. In the New Testament book of James, known for its practical application, provides that solid blueprint. For the next six Sundays, our, our morning messages will unpack a different application from the book of James each week. Our prayer is that this practical focus on the book of James will serve as a strong on-ramp for participation at Batesville as we start this new year. So James is a book with a lot of practical wisdom and a lot of direction for living. We will focus on six themes from the five-chapter book. And over the coming weeks, the themes we'll be studying will include next week lifestyle and moving from being a Sunday Christian to a 24-7 Christ follower. James is all about doing, taking action. Other topics that we'll explore include favoritism, self-control, conflict, and prayer. And we want you to determine to, to be here every Sunday for this valuable application. And this is a great time to, to invite friends and bring them with you to worship. So today we begin with a topic that affects all of us, everyone in the room. Ben Franklin made the, the observation, there are only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. If we were to add to his list of life's inevitabilities, we could also list trials and testings of our faith. No one goes through life unscathed by suffering from problems and pain. And so today's challenge is don't quit when tested, but rely on God and his wisdom. Don't give up. So let's delve into some background. The first four verses give us a little of the context here of this study and help us see that times of testing are difficult. So the, the book is entitled James, and there are several men named James in the Bible. We believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the author of this book. James wrote this important teaching to the church early in the church's history, probably by A.D. 62. The, the corruption of the Roman influence in occupied Palestine saw the growth of violence injustice, and poverty. And this ultimately led to the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of Christians and Jews alike. So let's begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of James. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. You know, when we write a, a letter, we sign our name at the very end. They had a more common sense approach. Instead of waiting until the end to see who wrote the letter, they began right at the beginning, really before the salutation, by saying, hey, this is from James, and I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, had been dispersed by Rome. 
And he begins, hi, greetings, how are you? And so notice James didn't name drop. He could have said, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. We shared a a room, had bunk beds together. Uh, You you know me. He he didn't begin that way. He, He simply, humbly identified himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Originally, James had been skeptical of Jesus's divinity, but it was after the resurrection when he saw Jesus crucified and then restored to life that he was convinced. And James became a a believer, not only a believer, but a, a pillar, the Bible says, a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. So he was writing this epistle, an epistle is a letter to the Jews who had to leave the region of Palestine because of persecution. Now, while some New Testament books were letters to a specific church, the First and Second Corinthians were letters to the church in Corinth. Philippians was a letter to the church in Philippi. Romans was a letter to the church in the city of Rome. James was different. James was a circular letter with general teaching designed to be circulated to a number of churches, much like we would forward an email today that had been helpful to us. It was intended to be widely distributed to the Christians who were scattered due to the persecution of Rome. It is timeless in challenge for all Christians at all times. So let's continue in verse 2, chapter 1. He writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of, of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's what the blueprint indicates for responding correctly to the testing times in life that will inevitably come your way. It's saying, keep a positive, joyful attitude in spite of your trials. Yes, they will test your faith, but they will serve as a stepping stone to your personal growth, aiding in the development of perseverance, which will chisel and shape you into spiritual maturity. Throughout life's challenges, faced successfully, we begin growing more like God. It's often a gradual, painful assignment, but if we face our challenges rather than flee them, they become a divine means of schooling us to be more like God. And part of that begins with the right attitude toward our trials. Although we don't masochistically enjoy them, we can have a joyful attitude about the growth they can produce. Notice the passage doesn't say, feel it to be pure joy when you face trials. Realistically, we don't feel joy when we face trials. We can't, however, make a conscious mental decision to find the joy. And so instead, we are told to consider it 
pure joy when we face trials that test our faith, develop perseverance, and mature us spiritually. We consider it and we make a mental choice to optimistically seek the value, learn the lesson, gain the growth that difficulty can produce. The joyful man or woman recognizes that although we can't control some of the things that life throws at us, we can control our response and attitude toward those obstacles. Times of testing were difficult for the original readers of the book of James, just as times of testing are often difficult for us modern-day readers of James. So the, the background is that times of testing are, are difficult. But as we read on in the, the chapter, we see the blueprint, which asks the question, what is God teaching me from this test? Steve Johnson, a, a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills, on November 8, 2010, faced off against the rival Pittsburgh Steelers. And the Bills ultimately lost the game when Johnson dropped a pass in the end zone during overtime. After the game, via Twitter, he publicly blamed God for the loss, tweeting, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? Do you expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Well, that football player had given God his worship, I praise you 24-7. In exchange for that, he expected to receive God's help on the field. And when that did not come to pass, he blamed God for failing to uphold his end of the deal. To Steve Johnson and many others, religion is a means of seeking control over otherwise unpredictable events, in this case, a football game, by incurring divine favor. But notice in that arrangement that the creature, Steve Johnson, assumes a position of authority over the creator, God. At times, the Bible indicates that God may allow us to be tested in our faith as he allowed Abraham and in Genesis chapter 22, but more often our, our trials are products of our own doing or they're, they're caused by sinful decisions and sometimes they're brought upon us by actions and choices beyond our control from, from others. Other times, as with Job, we may be walking with the Lord in righteousness, but Satan initiates the testing to try to distract and, and deter us. So we may not always be able to, to comprehensively identify the source of our suffering, but regardless of the cause, there are still lessons that we can learn. The tough times don't last forever, but the lessons learned do. In spite of the difficulties faced, a person's faith, if genuine, will prove itself during tough times of testing. Facing tough times draws us close to God and reminds us that we need his wisdom, that our own strength, that our own wisdom are, are insufficient. 
And this passage emphasizes the availability of God's wisdom that is there for Christians simply for the asking. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. And part of this process of testing involves us turning to God for his wisdom, letting him and his word supply the direction for the paths we should take or should avoid. Look in verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Just pause for a second. Thinking of a New Year's resolution, what better choice than, Lord, I'm going to go through this year seeking your wisdom before I make any major decisions. You've offered it to me. You've promised it. It's available. I'm going to take advantage of that. I haven't always used it in the past. I'm going to utilize it this year. Verse 6 says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James cautions that we should pray in faith, expecting God to provide wisdom. And that means more than just an occasional haphazard shotgun request. Oh, oh yeah, Lord, uh, give me some wisdom, please. It refers to this consistent, determined, passionate petitioning of God for him to, to make his will clearly known to us. It requires this ongoing seeking of his will his way, his word for direction. And as painful as tough times can be, they can provide a sweet oasis for deeper fellowship with God than we would typically bother to forge if our lives were unobstructed by troubles. As C.S. Lewis observed, God whispers to us in our pleasure but shouts to us in our pain. We are often distracted from focusing on God, but when we go through difficult times of testing, we tend to listen better to God. Uh, he has our attention. We can learn from our testings. And we need to ask God what we should learn from our adversity and then listen to what he will show us. And he wants to provide wisdom and help us grow from these tests in life that are inevitably encountered. As we seek his divine wisdom, we should pray, what am I to learn from this difficulty? How can I draw closer to you? Teach me, Lord. Cleanse me, Lord. There's a hymn entitled Cleanse Me based on Psalm 51 after David had had his indiscretion with Bathsheba, he wrote this, this psalm as a, a song crying out to God. And, and so it's, it's been reworked into this hymn by J. Edwin Orr, Cleanse Me. And this is what he, he penned. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set 
me free. I praise thee, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word and make me pure within. Fill me with fire, for once I burned with shame. Grant my desire to magnify thy name. The final stanza, Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, self, and pride. I now surrender, Lord, in me abide. We want God to cleanse us, grow us, make us pure and innocent like a child again. Kelly Atkins wrote an article in Campus Life entitled Kevin's Different World. She said, my brother Kevin thinks God lives under his bed. At least that's what I heard him say one night. He was praying out loud in the dark bedroom, and I stepped outside his closed door to listen. Are you there, God? He said. Where are you? Oh, I see, under the bed. Adkins said, I, I giggled softly and tiptoed to my own room. Kevin's unique perspectives are often a source of amusement, but that night, something else lingered long after the humor. I I realized for the first time the very different world that Kevin lives in. He was born 30 years ago, mentally disabled as a result of difficulties during labor. Apart from his size, he's six foot two. There are few ways in which he is an adult. He reasons and communicates with the capabilities of a seven-year-old and always will. I don't think Kevin knows anything exists outside of his world of daily rituals and weekend field trips. He doesn't know what it means to be discontent. His life is simple. He will never know the entanglement of wealth or power. He does not care what brand of clothing he wears or what kind of food he eats. He recognizes no differences in people, treating each person as an equal and a friend. His needs have always been met, and he never worries that one day they may not be. His hands are diligent. Kevin is never so happy as when he is working. When he unloads the dishwasher or vacuums the carpet, his heart is completely in it. He does not shrink from a job when it is begun, and he does not leave a job until it is finished. But when his tasks are done, Kevin knows how to relax. He's not obsessed with his work or the work of others. His heart is pure. He still believes everyone tells the truth. Promises must be kept. And when you are wrong, you apologize instead of argue. Free from pride and unconcerned about appearances, Kevin is not afraid to cry when he is hurt, angry, or sorry. He is always transparent, always sincere. And he trusts God, not confined by intellectual reasoning. When he comes to Christ, he comes as a child. And Kevin seems to know God, to, to really be friends with him in a way that's difficult for an educated person to grasp. God seems like his closest companion. And one day, when the mysteries of heaven are opened, and we are all amazed at how close God really is to our hearts, I'll realize that God heard the simple prayers of a boy who believed God lived under his bed. 
And Kevin won't be surprised at all. Madeline Lengel has accurately observed, I don't envy those who have never known any pain, physical or spiritual, because I strongly suspect that the capacity for pain and the capacity for joy are equal. And only those who have suffered great pain are able to know equally great joy. You know, we, we have some joy-filled people here at BCC who, who demonstrate joy despite the difficulties they have encountered in life. And these folks are not immune to hardship. and In fact, each has experienced some great pain and testing in this life, but each has an abiding joy that comes as they are growing like God. So the, the background of this chapter teaches us that times of testing are difficult. The, the blueprint shows us to ask the question, what is God teaching me from this? And then finally, verse 12, we see the blessing, the reward that comes to those who persevere. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so our, our action response is don't quit when tested, but rely on God and his wisdom. Maybe you've heard the famous speech by Winston Churchill, never give up. It was, was made on October 29th. 1941 to the boys at the, the Harrow School. And he said, never, never, in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Nazi concentration camp survivor Viktor Frankl asserted, the last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And he's right. Our, our trials will either make us bitter or they'll make us better. And leading the way for us, despite difficulty, is the example of reward that we see in Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Seeing past the oppressive pain of the crucifixion to the outcome, Jesus suffered for us to establish a way for us to spend eternity with him in heaven. So don't let the pain of present difficulties obscure your eternal focus. It's a wonderful life in many ways right now, but in terms of eternal life in heaven, it is truly a wonderful life that has been offered to us. And if we don't rejoice today, we will not rejoice at all. If we wait until all conditions are perfect, we will still be waiting when we die. If we're going to rejoice, it must be in this day. 
a few of us were talking before the service, and you know, how's the new year going? It's it's going well. I said, That's pretty good. January second, we're we're two days in, and it's going all right. It, that's the attitude of Psalm one eighteen twenty four. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Tough times don't last forever, but the lessons learned do. They can last on into eternity. Let me tell you about a, a composer who was tested. And he wrote a song to process and express his grief. Thomas Andrew Dorsey, black jazz musician from Atlanta in the 1920s, gained a certain amount of notoriety as the composer of some popular jazz tunes with suggestive lyrics. But he gave all that up in 1926 to exclusively focus on composing spiritual music. Peace in the Valley was one of his best-known songs. And, but there's a story behind his most famous song that, that needs to be told. The song you probably heard at a funeral, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. The, the year was 1932. The times were hard for Dorsey and just trying to survive the Depression years as a working musician meant tough sledding. But the real kick in the teeth came one night in St. Louis when he received the telegram informing him that his pregnant wife had died suddenly. Dorsey was so filled with grief that his, his faith was shaken to the very foundation. But instead of wallowing in self-pity, he, he turned to the discipline he knew best, music. And in the midst of his agony, he wrote these lyrics. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. The Lord is our most precious resource in those hours of trial. Psalm 9-9 promises, The Lord is my refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Tom Dorsey understood that. His song was originally written as a way of coping with his personal pain, but even today it continues to bless thousands of others when they pass through times of hardship. And we must remember that we do not need to be on top of the mountain for God to use us. Many times it's our view from the valley that also encourages those who travel with us. Now, I wish I could tell you that God will deliver you from every hardship, difficulty, or pain, but I can't promise that. Many times we face the tough times and he supplies what we need rather than extricating us from our troubles. The words of this poem capture the, the work that God wants to do in our lives through the tough times. It's entitled, And God Said No. I asked God to take away my pride, and God said no. He said it was not for him to take away, but for me to give up. I asked God to make my disabled child whole, and God said no. He said her spirit is whole, 
her body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience, and, and God said, no. He said, patience is a byproduct of tribulation. It, it isn't granted, it is earned. I asked God to give me happiness, and God said, no. He said he gives blessings, happiness is up to me. I asked God to spare me pain, and God said no. He said suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow, and God said no. He said I must grow on my own, but he will prune me to make me fruitful. I asked God if he loved me. And God said, yes. He gave me his only son who died for me, and, and I will be in heaven someday because I have obeyed him. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. And God said, ah, finally, you have the idea. Would you pray with me? Dear God, as we go into this new year, we know we'll face some, some tough days, some difficult challenges. May we lean into you during those times learn the lessons that are there for us and let you draw us in, into perseverance and, and maturity so that we would, in a greater way, reflect you to others. We know we can't do that on our own, Lord, and so we pray that you would work good from this process of pain that we will experience. We ask this in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, tough times don't last forever but the lessons learned do. James became a believer in Jesus and in his power. But like I said earlier, James originally had not believed that his roommate, half-brother, Jesus, was actually the son of God. It was only after Jesus was crucified and restored to life that, that James became an ardent believer. The Lord changed him forever. This morning, are you ready to follow Christ today? to let him change you forever? Are, are you already an immersed believer willing to make Batesville your church home? Or are you in need of someone to pray with you about a specific challenge or, or trial that you're facing in your life? But whatever is the, the need that you have this morning, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand together, as we sing.